Before listening to this amazing episode, please be aware there is some salty language. Welcome to Evanston Rules. We'd like to introduce you to the Blunts. Before I met Ben and Melissa, I was a fan. I followed them on Instagram and was inspired by their work as artists and activists. When Michael, Ronnie, and I met Ben and Melissa, I was even more enamored, and we knew they had to be guests on Evanston Rules. These two awesome Renaissance humans make the world a better place in act and deed. Their commitment to their family, work, activism, integrity, art, involvement in community, and embracing of Evanston is what makes it a better place. Today we're here with Melissa and Ben Blunt, who moved to Evanston in 2014. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Correct. Melissa, I'm going to start with something that was basically my favorite thing I read. And I think we share something in common. I read that your favorite word is fuck. (laughs) (laughs) That's the way to start it out. (laughs) Truth. And you're welcome to use that word as much as you want during this podcast. All right. Okay. So just so you know, we found it. (laughs) (laughs) That's going to be on my gravestone. (laughs) It might be on mine too. Times three. (laughs) If you didn't hear me the first time. Anyway, I thank you all for being here. You know, you were on our list when we were starting to put things together. And then, you know, the pandemic. And then we got blessed with uh, movement. Tell us what got you all to move to Evanston. We moved to Evanston in 2014. We're both from Detroit. So we thought we were going back home of sorts in 2012. We really wanted to be part of the Detroit Renaissance. You know, this whole narrative that had started to be created around how people could go there and buy a house for a dollar and have all this land and stuff it's just all the dollar houses were gone (laughs) (laughs) and so ben never got a job there so for two years he was going back and forth between chicago and then in 2014 he got laid off and we started just thinking what have we done what's happening we just can't make things happen in detroit because it wasn't thriving at all. I mean, we, we just had such a hard time. The only person that was really thriving was our daughter, Sophia. So when Ben lost his job, we were like, well, do we really still go guns blazing for Detroit or do we figure out where we would go next? And it just seemed like a natural thing to come back to Chicago because that's where all of Ben's job leads were. And looking on paper, looking oh, at the numbers. Yeah. Like looking at the schools, looking at kind of the diversity numbers, the test scores, it seemed like a good alternative to Chicago as far as like a place to plan for the future for schooling. So I was like, oh, this might be the answer. Yeah, that's how we ended up in Evanston. But I was initially not happy about it because I just felt like there's such contention between the city of Detroit and the surrounding suburbs. And Mayor Coleman Young famously said, don't come across eight mile to suburban white folks. He was like, stay in the suburbs. So I just have always grown up with this negative understanding of what the suburbs are. And so I was real leery about Evanston, but felt like 
we didn't have much of a choice at that time. So integrated schools, integrated city, access. So in the six years you've been here, what say you? Is it still that access when you look in schools? Do you see diverse administration and diverse teachers when you look in your daughter's classrooms? Are you seeing that diversity that you hoped for? And even as you migrate around the city, are you getting what you wished for in moving to Evanston? Not in that regard. Yeah, not in that regard. Yeah, this is a funny place. Well, sorry to interrupt, to be clear. Not in what regard? This is the promise of the diversity that it's not as advertised. I mean, it was definitely a welcoming scene. When we came here, the building that we moved into, the neighbors were super terrific. Sophia School, we liked it. Her first friends were all girls of color, like her, her main group. Yeah, was like, like a couple of Asian girls and one South Asian Indian girl. Yeah, and they were like a little posse. And so they had those aspects, but as far as like... As far as being a truly an engaged community where people really interact with one another, that uh, across SES or across and, class and across color and across... And not even that. People I, live alongside each other. They don't live interconnected. It's like living parallel. And it's very shocking to us how we have not had a lot of engagement or connection with the Black community in Evanston, given that we're both from one of the Blackest cities in America, which is Detroit. And that's why I was chasing down Black folks. Yeah, I said, you're even jumping ahead because when we first got here, we literally didn't see any Black people. Like, I yeah, mean, I was just like, what is happening? Like, where are the black people? Yeah, we go to art shows, we go to stuff in the library, we would go to You know, these events. race talks, and I'm the only black person at the race talk, and we go to school functions. Like, you know, I had all the time in the world at that time because I wasn't working, and so... Which school did Sophia go to? She that went to Dewey. Okay. Yes, yeah, so I was going to say these feelings and thoughts that you had up front. Is it tolerable? <laughs> and what can you tell us about that experience? It is just so strange. Like from the beginning, Evanston started winning my heart over. I struggled to really get my psychology practice up and going in Detroit. It was just a mess. But as soon as I started looking for office space, found it right away, rented it right away, got clients right away. Everything was really smooth. And then I started going to talks about race at the YWCA and met some really good people there with these older white folks. Cause you know, they were in the middle of the day at noon. So I got to know a lot of people that way. And then it just was this domino, good blessings kind of effect. The building we moved into, lovely people. It was like a open door policy with between six units and we made friends with those folks and we're still friends with them. It's where Ben and I both blossomed with our art journey. The space that you started with, which maybe the title of the first chapter could be Fear of a Suburban Planet. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. But, you know, this feels more like home than Detroit does now. Mm, tell us why. When I go back to Detroit, I don't recognize it. it. It has really been gentrified, the downtown. The rents in the downtown area are ridiculous. And Eastern Market is over 
run with white folks. And I don't say that in a way that I'm discriminating against white folks, but there was just this kind of, what would you say, like white flight in Detroit. And I mean, white folks really stayed away from Detroit. And Ben and I, last summer, he went to do a letterpress uh, print workshop and we were in a restaurant on Gratiot in one of the roughest areas <laughs> at one time, and we were the only black people in the restaurant. Yeah, and growing up, there'd never be a situation where you're the only black person somewhere. You couldn't manufacture that. Yeah, and white people looking at us crazy like, what are y'all doing here? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, right? well, <laughs> it's funny, in Detroit, yeah. white people run so fast from black folks. It's like that every suburb that Detroit with where black people were moving, like Southfield, for right. instance, right. is one of the mm-hmm. neighboring suburbs. That's all black now, because white people move further and further out. Like, pretty soon they're going to be in Canada. So, you know, you moved into Evanston because of its diversity, mm-hmm. but you don't sound as satisfied as you thought you would be. Or hoped. Right. Well, let me give some backdrop, because I think our journey, because of who we are, is probably a little bit more difficult. We don't go to church. I would say that I'm definitely, and this sounds so cliche, but it's true. I'm definitely a spiritual person. You know, I grew up Baptist, went to the big prominent church in Detroit, Hartford, Reverend Adams, just grew up deeply ingrained in church. But as I grew older, I just didn't like the dogma of church and just that whole piece of it. So I think our Black community would certainly be present if we went to church. Say we join Second Baptist or something like that, or the AME church. But because we don't go to church, we're not in close proximity to Black folks. And I'm not sure, Ben, if that makes us suspect to Black people, too. I I wonder about that. Well, depending, (laughs) right? Well... Uh, that, yeah, but that's, that's, that's a long but, conversation. Yeah, right? no, I that, think that's, that's what we. That's a whole yeah. different other podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have a lot to say about that in Evanston, and here it, it's just been so strange. But I, I'll tell you what, Larice, the only time I see black folks at my sewing circles, you know, when we were working on the Black Lives Matter witness quilt, mm-hmm. up here in Evanston, like all white women. And let's go really quickly into the work you do. You're a licensed therapist, you see clients, but you have this amazing artwork that you do. So when you talk about your sewing circles, can you discuss the pieces you did specifically in February each day during Black History Month? Well, those pieces grew out of me trying to lighten some of the burden and despair and grief that I felt, which was the Black Lives Matter witness book and working on memorializing Black women, girls, and babies who lost their lives to violence in Chicago from 2016 and 2017. So there are two things that happened. I started collecting what I, I would go into antique stores and say, do you have Negro memorabilia? Code for racist imagery. Mm-hmm. And so I would have these be like mammy cookie jars, picking mini napkins and tablecloths and stuff. And so seeing this imagery on textiles coupled with black women are dying at alarming rates and nobody's talking about it. 
I was just like, I want to celebrate Black women. We're more than statistics. We're more than victims of violence. You know, the hashtag Black Girl Magic. And so I just wanted to explore that magic. I wanted to explore the accomplishments and lives of Black women and celebrate Black women. So that's when I came up with the ABCs of Black Girl Magic. And so for each day in February, I featured a letter of the alphabet and the woman on that textile piece, which are embroidered on Ikea dish towels. And so A, for example, is Asada Shakur. He is Bridget... Biddy Mason, who was a self-made millionaire after she was freed from slavery and migrated, I think, from Virginia to Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. I I mean, I just can't imagine at that time period migrating that far as a Black woman and becoming a millionaire in L.A. and starting Mm -hmm. one of the first AME churches that still exists today. You know, when I continue to think about the Black woman's struggle in terms of race in America, right? It was a question that I never asked my Black mother. I asked my Black father, but as Black men, as a Black man, I can't speak for all Black men, but for myself, it just, it's something that I'm aware of, but I have never dug into it because I'm so worried about Black men. Mm-hmm. So it's just, it's a piece of a story that is so powerful and so real, but I have to be honest, it didn't resonate deep enough with me that my mom growing up in Jim Crow South could have dealt with racism like my father dealt with it. Part of it is that Black women are supposed to be strong and silent and to take it and to not have tears and to not complain. And that is obviously part of the problem as we raise our families. I think that's really what the ABC series is about and the Black Lives Matter witness quilt is about is really raising the presence of and centering Black women. And I base a lot of my work on Kimberly Crenshaw's intersectionality. Andrea Ritchie is this lawyer who has written a book I cannot remember the name of her book, but she centers Black women, uh, Black transgender women. And the reason all of this stuff is so complicated with respect to raising the issues and concerns for Black women is that if you're talking about the oppression and invisibility of Black women, you have to talk about what Black men have done to Black women. And that often gets framed in a way that is more like Black women are betraying Black men or belittling Black men, rather than saying Black women are at the bottom of every total poll in the history of America. Because on the Black Lives Matter Witness Quilt Project, what became painfully clear was that Black women most of those deaths, and especially the deaths of babies, are at the hands of Black men. And one of the women who also informs my work, which is Audrey Lord, mm-hmm. has this wonderful conversation that was published in Essence magazine, I think in 1984. Mm-hmm. I might be wrong about that, but both of them are talking. And she really challenges James Baldwin yeah. to 
hey, we can't just talk about racism as this big umbrella. We have to talk about sexism too in the way that this goes back to kind of what Al Sharpton said at George Floyd's memorial. You know, America has had their knee on the neck of black men. And so Audre Lorde talks about black men with that kind of untreated trauma and anger and rage then come home and put their knee on the neck of black women. But I think the women's story is hopefully transcending as we look at Madam C.J. Walker and Harriet Tubman. You know, stories are coming out, I think, of resilience and determination and fight. But Ben, I, I actually met you through Larice, and I want to bridge for a second the art because this was so powerful to me. <laughs> this is something you have in your studio. So I'm going to read it. Then you tell me how this resonates with the two of you. It is this poster that says, Dear Evanson, I'm so glad we moved here. The schools, the lake, the inequality. It's close to the city, separated, and we love Andes. <laughs> right? So I'm like, I know. all right, tell me about that. <laughs> Andes is actually close. But I love that when we walk into your office and I saw that on print. Tell us about that and then tell us a little bit about what you do. <laughs> yeah, it was for a show. My friend Lisa, who owns a gallery, 1100 floors, right down the street from my studio. She was doing uh, a show about Evanston Art. She wanted me to do something for it, just put it in the show. And, and so, like, what can I say about Evanston? And I don't know, be a little honest and came with this letter. And I was reading it to Melissa and Sophia. Like, Melissa's always like my sounding boards. But before it goes on in the world, and I had some that were a little bit softer, a little bit nicer. And that was probably the one that went the hardest. And she's like, oh, you got to do that one. Oh, you got to do that <laughs> Yeah, I loved it. Yeah. And so, and, but that was the feeling like, and there's a lot of people, they move here, like the schools are great and it's right by the water and they got the private public beaches <laughs> that you pay for. Right. And there's lots to love. And, and kids that grow and up. It is, and it is diverse. And, yeah. And, and, and white kids go to black. I, well, let me rephrase. I don't know how much. Black kids are going to white but, people's houses. But can, there is a relationship between black and white people that doesn't happen in a lot of parts of the country. And even older black people who are not 100% happy with Evanston that grew up here feel that way. That there's something. Yeah, that, the, there's, there that is these a, are good white folks. There's a, I mean, you're, I'm not saying that. You're saying something different. <laughs> what is that? Melissa, what, what does yeah. that mean? Yeah. It, I mean, like, what does good white folk mean? What does that mean? <laughs> Well, it's like sometimes when you start talking about race things here and you're like, this is not utopia. It, right? It's not Heavenston. People get really angry. And, and I've experienced this from some of the older black folks in town when I've said things. It's just like, hey, now we got some good white folks. You know, they don't say that literally. Right, right. But it's like, right. we got some good white folks here. Don't be talking about my white folks. And I'm just like, <laughs> we have to talk about it because they think they are really doing something by letting these little black kids come and play in their yard and maybe have dinner and they do the fundraiser and they give scholarships to the little black and brown kids and yay we're so diverse it's so great I love it here and it's just like do you have any black friends right and in a way doesn't that mimic what has happened all along in that black folks have gone into white houses to work mm. 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 yes 
And so they let yes. us in for these periods of time, but they have not come to see who we are. No. Oh my God, Larice. And that's that. Now this is the thing that happened for us. We would ask white friends, where are the black people? And no one said anything about the fifth ward. So it took a long time for us to understand the whole ward dynamic. And I would go over to the fifth ward and I don't know, what was I doing in the fifth ward? And I rushed home and I told Ben, I found black people. They're in the fifth ward. I know where they are now. But then when we would talk to all of our white friends, they were like, you were where? I've never been over there. Isn't that I, something? I, yeah. It's like the Bermuda Triangle for white people. Yes. Yes. And, and, it, and it's kind oh, of crazy. I know what it was, Larice. We were, I was going to a coffee with a cop. Uh, and I was just intrigued by this wonderful relationship Evanston folks have with the police because I was completely unfamiliar with that. That's when I discovered. I rode my bike over there and I was like, oh, this is where the black people are. Okay. Six years ago, looking at a place to move. So I just want everybody to do the rewind for a second. And knowing what you know, would you have done anything differently? No. No, I don't think so. Okay. Now that you found out where black people are, now that you've attended race conversations with you being the only black person there, how do we continue to help Evanson unpack the reality of race and access? Oh, that is... uh tough question but I but I, I feel like the conversation is being had I mean they're having them in the middle schools you can avoid them but yeah it's, you're it's being, being had them. there's plays putting it right out there like high quality productions from Fleetwood Jordan and Mudlark is doing stuff Opal's Piven, putting stuff Piven, out there Piven I mean theater I, did a big thing about the play of Home by the Lake and our friend Nina has Dear Evanston, and she tries to have community book discussions. Where yeah, she's done some wonderful things. Yeah, so, I, you, you know, they're getting there, and I think with this confluence of, like, the pandemic, financial crisis, and just the sheer fuckery of the current <laughs> political climate, people are more willing to engage and be empathetic than they had been before. So Ben, tell us about Project 275. Oh yeah, 275 holidays. So that kind of is the connection between Melissa and my work as well. So for that show, I had this idea when I was at work several years ago, a white coworker of mine said to a black coworker of mine, both women, it was on Martin Luther King Day. And she said, you know, if we had the day off for every time a black man got shot, we would never go to work. <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> now, the, now the, but before, the way they were talking about it. Wait a second, yeah. wait a second. Wait, <laughs> wait, 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 the black co-worker <laughs> said... This is what we love. By the way, this is what we love about women. Right? They, our women love us. They tell us, wait a minute, hold on. Let me break it down for you. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. The, the black co-worker said, you know, she was kind of perturbed that they didn't have the day off for Martin Luther King Day. She was telling the white girl, hey, you know, we should have this day off. We shouldn't be at work. And so this chick answers back and says... The chick being the white girl. Right. Okay. Yeah. She says to the black woman, "Um, well, if we had a day off for every time a black man got killed, we'd never go to work. 
<laughs> true. <laughs> that is true. Truth. And so, yeah, I just, this, and I just thought it was just the craziest, like, racist thing that someone said that I had heard out loud in the office. Yeah, at work. Yeah, like, so. But let's I, just, let's, let's just pause on that for a second, right? We would never be at work if we took a holiday for every black man that got shot. Now, as insensitive as that was, is, and as offensive, is it not true? Well, that, this, is, this piece is bringing that to life. So I held on to it for a long time. My first thought was like, I'm going to collect all the racist stuff that people have heard in the office. I'm going to make this big, giant book of racist things that Black people hear every day. Mm -hmm. And I sat on it for years. And after a while, I was like, it's that's kind of interesting to me and kind of humorous to me. But it's like, is anyone going to really want to read that book? And so I thought, what if I flipped it? Well, yes, people would. Yes, yeah. we do. But, but, but go ahead. Yeah, I thought, what if I flipped it? So that if you get a day off work, it's just because it's a holiday, right? So what if every death was a holiday? So I went and did research and found every black man that was murdered or killed <clears throat> in Chicago in 2016. And I took their deaths and put them on a 2017 calendar as a holiday. <clears throat> So there were 535 deaths of black men in Chicago. And when you put them on a calendar, sometimes it's multiple deaths in a day, it's 275 holidays. And so I made an actual, actual calendar, like a wall calendar with red dots for every time a person got killed and listed their names chronologically. And then I also made a page a day calendar. So mm -hmm. it's about four or five inches high Wow. Uh, these big pages where you turn the page every day and you see the person's name uh, that got killed. So there was a day in August where there were seven or eight people. What I think Ben and I, because we've known each other for so long, it, it's hard sometimes to disconnect where our work is separate, but everything is always kind of intertwined. And what I think both of us are trying to do is really raise the level of conversation around the violence that occurs in black communities. Because it's not either we're talking about black police brutality or black folks are killing each other, black on black crime, that's just too simplistic. What mm -hmm. I want to have happen is that for people to really understand that state violence takes many forms. And that's when you intentionally not mistakenly, like saying people are underrepresented or marginalized communities. It doesn't really give you the full story of how our federal government has deliberately acted in ways that are very violent and have deliberately undervalued and made it impossible for many people to thrive in America, for Black folk to thrive in America, and that the violence is a symptom, a symptom of white supremacy. It mm. is not that black people are just violent, reckless animals who have no regard for human life. I'm so tired of that, of the violence on the South and West sides or in the Fifth Ward here in Evanston being couched in this not so subtle language of well, you know they're black. You know, you know they just act like that. They just real violent. When it gets hot, they just get violent. I want us to couch the violence that happens in 
black on black crimes as something that is a learned behavior from a very violent past, from a very violent experience. And it seems as though we're mimicking those folk that have perpetuated violence all over the world. What would well, you say to that? But, but Ronnie, I, it's more complicated. And you know, violence happens with respect to proximity. Yep. And so when white people want to talk about their neighborhoods are violent, and I'm like, have you gone to the college campus of a police department where they've hidden how many white girls mm -hmm. have been raped and sexually assaulted by mm -hmm. white boys? Mm -hmm. They hide that shit. So the violence that happens in white communities, white on white crime happens, it doesn't get reported on and amplified in the media like the violence in black communities does. As well as those boys do not get punished because they come from good yes. families, they're good boys. Yes. I'm putting that yes. in quotes. Because black people will be like, when it gets into the politics of respectability, they'll be like, we can't be out here marching and protesting and trying to keep the cops from killing us and y'all are killing each other. And it's like, no, that is a false dichotomy. It, it, it doesn't work like that. When you have people who have unresolved trauma yep. and have financial crises and are devalued and dehumanized, yep. I'm surprised that there is not more violence. That is the miracle yeah. that there is not more violence. It is a miracle that beauty and joy, that's why I say black people are the most magnificent folks yeah. in America because we find ways to be extraordinary under impossible, impossible circumstances. Because one is I also know in the, the business you have been, while yes, it may be that violence is something that the two of you focus on, you also raise consciousness on community. And there are many people who have come through to take those printing classes and yet material is up on the wall. So are there conversations, Ben, when you're in the print business, when you two are there, where you're the unconsciousness, people getting safe and having conversations about race and community building? I will say the construct is not my print. It's a friend of mine, Rick Griffith, who is another black printer in, in Denver. Denver, who is okay. awesome. uh, amazing. But yeah, that's, that's kind of where my head is at, generally speaking. And so that's kind of how the conversations <laughs> tend to go. I've noticed that. So people come to the studio to kind of see the press sometimes and get involved in the printing. And that's just, that's kind of how we live our lives is where our focus is. So are you able, the two of you, when you're in the shop, are you able to address those issues directly when it's spoken? Yeah, and no, no, so yeah, you, some people yeah. will come in and get like, really, I'm like, hey, what's going on? Like, oh, I really like your work. And then they'll go into a story about something like, just sharing something with me. Like their family members who voted for Trump. Yeah, or I'm gonna put this up in my office, I know people are gonna give me a look, or I'm gonna make sure, yeah, I, I do get those, Kind of, and we get it a lot with the signs. People a, are yeah. like, "Oh, somebody stole my sign, vandalized my sign," and so that brings up a lot of conversations. Too. So, speaking about the signs, you've been working at placing the signs around town, and I think you've got what two thousand up yeah. uh, around town. And, and just for numbers' sake, in a town of seventy-five thousand people, 
you've got 2,000. That's mm -hmm. less than 10%. I mean, the numbers are pretty small for our integrated, happy mm -hmm. place. Mm -hmm. Evans, tell, tell us about that work and what it's like and what you've run up against while doing this and some of the comments you've gotten. I mean, I applaud the 2,000 people, but... It's been quite a journey. We started that on what, in 2015? Ben redesigned it because the, the Unitarian Church on Ridge had a big Black Lives Matter sign up, and we were really surprised and felt real good about seeing that outside of this predominantly white congregation. And they were selling their own signs. And so a friend helped a mother from Milwaukee plan a Million Moms March in DC. And so a set of friends of ours couldn't go to that march. So we held a vigil in Twiggs Park. Mm -hmm. So after that, we named a majority of the young people who have been killed by police violence. And so it was during that talk that I said, hey, let's try to put a, a Black Lives Matter sign in everybody's yard. And, and so that started in, what, 2015? And this is when Black Lives Matter was a controversial phrase. Right. This isn't when everyone was, was saying it and people weren't marching. This was when All Lives Matter first popped up, Blue Lives Matter first popped up, and so... You can even see the change from when we did it in the beginning to the reception. And, and, and let me say, that wasn't just us. It was my friend, Laura Trubowitz, Heather Human Sweeney, Gail Smith, and Stephanie Tatarich. And out of that, people have gone on to do jobs at the ADL. Stephanie Tatarich is uh, now a board member on District 202. So, I mean, a lot of stuff grew out of it. But the thing that was disturbing to us is that, yeah, the reason not more people don't have the sign. We just had somebody say to us two months ago, I would not have put this sign in my yard. And can, I, can we pause and say that this is a person who you would imagine might be engaged? Yes. So a person who would be engaged in a significant community member and just said to us, coming to pick up the sign, I would not put this in my yard two months ago. And Ben and I were like, why? And, we, and he responded, well, I don't know if I agree with all the politics of, the, of Black Lives Matter or if I understand all the politics. And so we were like, hmm. Now, I, I chose not to engage further because I wasn't in a good mood. So the conversation. <laughs> yeah. Melissa, you and Ben, you work extremely hard to put out the message that Black Lives Matter. What do you feel the impact of those signs are having? And are they really making a difference? I, I think in some way I they think are. So, yeah, I feel like. If you drive around Evanston and you see hundreds and hundreds of signs, if you're visiting Evanston, maybe it brands Evanston as the kind of town that would do that. So if you're driving through Evanston and coming up to the movies or going to the Baha'i Temple and you say, wow, I drive up here and I see dozens of Black Lives Matter signs. I mean, that would tell you something. Or you go in a store and the store has that in their window. Right. Are white folk passing or do they really mean it? I don't know. I, it's, it's, it, it it's, both, it's both, it's but both, but I feel like yeah. if, yeah, to me, it's like, it's, I don't know. I think for some people, it's the first step. And if yeah. they're yeah. faking it somehow, they weren't going to do much more than that anyway. But I feel like 
having those Black Lives Matter signs, it makes some people feel good. It makes some people feel safer, I bet. And seeing that every day does something just like watching TV every day and seeing no Asian American leads, seeing no black leads does something. It's no active thing happening, but you see that every day, it does something to you. And I think the signs can do the same thing. And it raises thousands of dollars for Black Lives Matter yes. and other organizations, local organizations doing real work with people. So it does do that. Yeah. It, it funds, yeah, we've given away thousands of dollars to people that help people legal means with food, seeking justice. So it Children does that. Children to does go that visit well. their incarcerated mothers. Yeah. You know, it's paid for buses for that. Piggybacking on Ron's question. With the signs, when you think about the difference they make, what is it that you believe can actually get us to the other side? The other side of white supremacy? I don't think we're going to see that in our lifetime. I think we're planting seeds, though. But I think the beginning is like something like Black Lives Matter. If we can't all agree that Black Lives Matter, if we can't all agree that racism is a thing, that white supremacy is structural, we have to get on the same page, at least as far as the conversation, like even with the reparations. First, it's a reconciliation. We have to say, this is true. This has happened. This is wrong. This is the effect. And then we talk about solutions. So to jump to solutions when a large percentage of the country think this is a waste of time, think you're getting hands out. Hey, this is unfair. This is turning it around on us. The fact that I made those Black Lives Matter shirts six or seven years ago and had a few out in the world. And then this summer, hundreds of people from around the world are calling me to get these Black Lives Matter shirts. That means people feel differently about that message. People agree with it. People are promoting it. You know, white people used to ask me, oh, is it okay for me to wear a Black Lives Matter shirt? Does that make me racist? Am I co-opting something? And now people are pulling up on their way to a protest to wear a shirt. So that's not about my shirt. That's about them feeling different about that statement. So I feel like Maybe we're laying the groundwork for a real, honest conversation between people. There is a campaign to dehumanize Black folks. So if somebody will put a Black Lives Matter sign in their yard as performance, I'll take it. So we have five value words, inclusion, diversity, equity, acceptance, and love. Maybe Ben, if you go first, how do those resonate with you? Yeah, I feel like they're, and as you were saying, I just feel like they keep getting stronger and stronger. Like equity is a really strong word to me versus equality, the subtle difference. Like different people have different needs and not treating everyone the same. So I think equity is a powerful thing if people really understand what that is. And then you're ending on love, which is, you know, the, the most powerful of all words. But yeah, I feel like that's the journey we're on. We're trying to, we're trying to get to love. We're trying to get to equity as opposed to just equal because equality doesn't take into account differences and just doesn't account the, the different journey people are on. It doesn't take into the context that we're not starting in the same place. Mm. And so as there's a lot of people, that's a new information, you know, Im- new information for people like, why is there a black entertainment television? If there was a white entertainment television, you'd be so upset. And so <laughs> I think, yeah, understanding that equity is a different thing than equality. Everybody is the same in that we're, there's clearly just one species. It's not really racist. That's a social construct. But we are different. We have different cultures. We have been treated differently in this country. And so, yeah, I feel like it's a, uh, I love the words. Yeah, I feel like it's building to where we're trying to get to. Laying a foundation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so where do we go from here? And what do you tell 
a white family moving into Evanston about Evanston diversity? What I talk about is like the trauma of white supremacy, which impacts us all and impacts white people too. And what I want everybody to begin to have conversations about, and Ron, this gets to your point of where do we go from here, talk about how we are all suffering and traumatized by white supremacy. And for white folks, Isabel Wilkerson, who wrote Warmth of Other Sons, came to talk maybe about four years ago, and she was asked a question, do you, who's more damaged, black people or white people? by racism. I think I might not be getting it completely right, but she said, oh, everybody was expecting her to say black people. And she said, no, white people. She said, white people are more damaged because when you make up rules, like you can't pass another car, black people can't pass another car, uh, you know, white people in the car. How sick are you? Right. When, when you make up all these arbitrary, silly rules to ensure your superiority, that does something to your soul and to your psyche. And so she was putting forth this notion that I just kind of grabbed and latched onto it was that we have to address the pain and the trauma of what white supremacy has done to America. And until we do that, there's the, I use this with all my clients, the trauma triangle. Until you do that, we will have all of the dysfunction and despair and violence and death that we see right now. We cannot afford to keep overlooking this big trauma that is this festering wound. That's right. This is why you fix systems and not symptoms. And when we speak to that, right, the, the privilege can be toxic, even poisonous, right? right. As, you, as you hold like, on to it. Yeah. Here's good. the other thing. Like when we go to these talks and stuff, it's so interesting to me how, and these are diversity white folks who are saying this out loud, saying stuff like, white people, calm down. Your kids are fine. We're talking about the black kids now. But and, their and, kids aren't fine. Right. That's it, Larice. They're not fine. They it, are it, suffering. They this are is suffering. the problem. As long as they assume it's just our problem, there will always be a problem. Yeah, or we have to fix the little black kids. Right. We have to bring them up to where we are. It's always centering their whiteness and, and normalizing. And I'm like, your kids are not fine. I can see these little white boys, especially, and the little white girls walking around town and that you, they're just like little baby Republican racists making. That has got to be addressed. It has to be addressed. Let me ask you this. What is an ally? Well, I've been thinking a lot about this because our world here in Evanston is very, very white. Mm. Very white. And so the white folks that I have around me who I consider to be my real friends and allies, they are the people who are not afraid to go there. Go where for where? Where does that mean? To really the deep-seated wound and pain and anger that Black people live with. Like the toll that it takes 
on black folks and how they are suffering, how their lives are truncated and shrunk because of white supremacy and the places that they don't go or the people that they don't see because they've rendered them invisible. So people who are able to have those kind of conversations, people who are able to really be actively involved in movements, whether it's not you give the money or you show up at the protests or you're reading the book and doing the work or any number of ways in which you can really activate and be different. And you're doing your own self-awareness and growth. And that's why I think we have to remember that the trauma uh, goes everywhere. I mean, broadly, you can see, right, the Charleston shooting, uh, college campuses, businesses and others, right, Sandy Hook School. That is not Black people killing people. <laughs> exactly. And the, and the other thing is that if, if there's any kind of trauma, you have to do introspection. You have to do some kind of internalized work. It's not going to be any different if you don't really put yourself in this vulnerable, exposed way to do that internal work. Because a lot of times what Ben didn't share is that these people will come into his studio and act as if becoming his friend will cure racism. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, (laughs) no, you becoming my friend isn't going to cure your white supremacy. You got to do that internal work. I can't help you out with that. What advice do you give to people moving into Evanston about its diversity, about its access, about its inclusion? What do you say to a new family? Well, if they're in the school system, you have to be very aware and really be present and advocate for your child because the school system has definitely some problems. But I would say to the Black family with respect to having a place that feels safe and well-resourced and culturally trying to do the work, maybe not always successfully, but trying to do that work. Coming here and all of my angst about coming here, this place has been a respite. It's been a bomb. So there are wonderful things. You know, I've blossomed as an artist here. Safia has a level of independence that was where I really don't worry about her safety when she leaves the house. And I've lived a lot of places. This is a place that kind of comes the closest to trying to at least examine and put on the table some of these issues. For a white family, I would say don't be passive in your existence in Evanston. If you want this diversity, then get in there and do the work. You can't be a passive community member. You have to be engaged and get to know your neighbors. Go to the Fifth Ward. Let's go. Okay. (laughs) More black people. Now you know more black people in Evanston. Right Right around the corner from you. Hey, a real one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Melissa, pick one of our value words. Inclusion, diversity, equity, acceptance, and love. And tell me how it resonates with you. Diversity, inclusion. Equity, equity, acceptance, and love. I have really been focusing on love. I knew she was going to say love. Yeah. 
I have really been focusing on love because my rage has been out of control and it's gonna eat me up. And so there's this guy, Lama Rod Owens, who's a Buddhist monk. And some of my friends and I are taking his course and it has been transformative. It is life-changing. You know, I talk really aggressive, but I, I never really approach people in that way. But everything I say, I definitely would say to their face in an appropriate manner, because really what I'm trying to do is form a beloved community. I don't want to be right only. I, I want to be in relationship with people. And we're all suffering because of this virus of white supremacy. We can't really get to authentic love until we address the wounding and the devastation that this virus has caused. And so I've been like meditating and focusing and trying to really ground myself in love so that when I approach people, because they're really ignorant, they, they don't really know what they're talking about. And they're scared, but scared white people are dangerous. That's why therapists are essential. I'm like, please get a good therapist. You can change your life. As always, we want to thank you for following along. Find us at evanstonrules.com, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can listen on your favorite podcast app and don't forget to hit the subscribe button to get the latest episodes as they become available. And please leave a review. We'd love to hear from you. Now maybe someday, mm-hmm.